Uh, that was nice, huh? That was uh, soothing for the soul. It reminded me of that. This, they were singing, closing it up, drinking at the living water. Reminded me of that fourth beatitude. I was thinking about it, that the Lord would elaborate, and he would say, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. For they shall be filled, right? If you hunger and thirst for the right things, there's satisfaction, isn't there? The world runs about hungering and thirsting for, Amos would say, the dust. <laughs> but we hunger and thirst for righteousness. We thank the Lord for that. Well, Brian came up and said, oh, I forgot to say that you were coming up. So well, does that mean I shouldn't go home? Okay, well, it's good to be here, and we're going to try to finish up uh, in this uh, study. We began this morning on the tabernacle, and uh, just to review quickly, this morning we took a little journey. We took a journey through how the tabernacle came onto the scene and how um, God would prepare, begin to prepare a people for him. We looked at the Exodus chapter 12 and the Passover story and how God's redeeming work, God would redeem the children of Israel. And he redeemed them uh, in two ways. Do you remember? Oh, and I forgot to tell you, did you guys take notes this morning? Because we're quizzing you right now. He redeemed them in two ways. There were two forms of redemption. How did God redeem the children of Israel from Egypt. What did he redeem them from, first of all? What's the most important, what is, what is most necessary for redemption? What are we redeemed from? The wrath of God. So he redeemed them, first of all, from the wrath of God. And how did he redeem them from the wrath of God? Through what? Blood, right? So there was a redemption through the blood, and the blood would satisfy the wrath of God. But then there was another peril that the Egyptians faced as they got out into the wilderness, as they began to uh, make their journey, and Pharaoh would relent, and he would begin to pursue them. And there was another redeeming work that God would do. And this time, what would he redeem them from? How would he redeem them? Well, he would redeem them from with the water, right? With the water as he would part the sea. He would redeem them from the power of the tyranny of Pharaoh by what? Water, right? So he would redeem them by blood and he would redeem them by water. And then we understood and we asked a couple of questions. And the first question was, what was the goal of Israel's redemption? Was it to get into the promised land? And uh, I, if I start sounding like David Gooding, it was because I listened to him all week. He says, was it to get them into the promised land? Was it to them for them to have big, fancy houses? And on and on he went. Did you sound like him? A little bit. All right. <laughs> was it for them to eat big gourds, have big... Fancy meals and how? No, it wasn't. 
It wasn't the purpose and the goal of redemption. It says in Exodus 19.4, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. Right? The goal of redemption is a relationship. The goal of redemption is engaging with God in a relationship. And in that relationship, God would make a proposition to the children of Israel. And he would say, if you will obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be a peculiar people. You will be set apart. You will be different from the world. In a lot of ways, you will be a sanctified people, right? Not completely sanctified, but set apart for a special purpose. And he would make, uh, he would make a proposition, and the covenant there would be that you will build me a sanctuary, right? A place where God could dwell, where God would tabernacle. So we saw the goal was to free the children of Israel to be people free from the wrath of God, free from the tyranny of Egypt, which is symbolic of the world, free to serve God, free for God to dwell among them, and that they could act as a kingdom of priests before God. So we also discussed about the tabernacle and the structure of it and the, the construction of it and how it would be a and it would be an illustration for spiritual lessons that they would learn. They would learn that you 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 cannot, there's a separation and you cannot just approach God in any way that we are separated with the fence around, the white linen that would surround it. And though we were separated from God, we did have access, and we do have access, but it's on his terms, through that door. And even though the tabernacle was almost not erected because of the waywardness of the children of Israel, once it was erected and all of the Furniture was put in place, and I love that, which, again, Brother Rex brought up the last time, is, is that when God constructed the tabernacle, he started from the inside. He started from the holiest. He started from the Ark of the Covenant. He started from his promises, right? Reminds me of that time when Jesus would look to Peter and say, Peter, what, what? Who do, who, do the, who do people say that I am? And he would say, oh, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're a great prophet. And Jesus would say to him, but who, who do you say that I am? And Peter would say, you're the son of God. And Jesus would turn to him and say, right, you've said, Peter, and upon what? This rock, I will build my church. God builds the church from the what? From the inside out. And so once the tabernacle was brought up and it was constructed, the children of Israel would walk into it and they would walk into the court, into the first court and there the outer court as it was, and they would find two pieces of furniture. The first piece of furniture would be that altar, that brazen altar, which in and of itself is illustration can be, we can look at it and we can 
You see the horns on it, and we can see that it's square. It's perfect, it says it was perfectly square. We can see the horns as they represent the power of God because uh, that's representative of power. And so that, that, that altar was there. And then before you would enter into the holy place, there would be that laver with water. This morning we looked and we, just, we talked about the sacrifices and the distinction between the sacrifices of Israel and the sacrifice of Christ, right? Those sacrifices had to be, of Israel, had to be over and over again because they were animal sacrifices. And animals, they don't know anything about sin. And because of that, they could not purge our what? They could not purge our conscience of sin. And because of that, we couldn't be perfect. And so Jesus would come not in a body of an animal, but in the body of a man, in a human body. And he would die once for all to purge us, to purge us once and for all. So we looked this morning and we saw that the first need of humanity and Israel would learn this as they enter into or as they constructed the tabernacle and the priests would bring the sacrifices that the first and foremost need is to be saved from the wrath of God and being saved from the wrath of God requires the shedding of blood and without that there is no salvation and though our conscience is made perfect because the son of God would shed his blood once and for all Though we know that we are saved, and we don't have to keep coming back to that altar over and over again, there is still another salvation that we seek. It's a sanctifying work. There's a salvation that we seek, a salvation from that power of sin. And though in our conscience we can be sure that Christ Jesus died for our sins, there is still the guilt, There's the guilt of the penalty is satisfied, but there is still that evil conscience that we deal with. There are still those malicious thoughts and acts. Though we're confident that the blood of Christ has redeemed us from the deeds of sin, right? There is still that power of sin that we battle with. And, a, and an additional, a double cleansing is needed here. The blood saves us from the penalty of sin, a cleansing by blood. But there's a salvation from the power of sin, and this is a cleansing of water. And that would be illustrated in the laver, where it would be filled with water, as we read this morning in Exodus chapter 30, that before the priests would enter into the holy place, that they would wash their hands and they would wash their feet. But you know, it's interesting that I noticed this morning, um, or the, uh, actually the other day, is in Exodus, we see that we're introduced to the, we're introduced to the laver or we're, we're introduced to the altar, the altar of sacrifice in Exodus chapter 27, right? But we're, 
not we're not we're, we're we're not given the instruction or the Israelites were not given the instruction of the laver where the water would be for the washing of the hands and the feet until way later in chapter 30 and that's after in between all of the preparation that re was required for the priests you see the priests had to be thoroughly cleaned and there were precedents that they had to go through. There was a process before they could begin to enter and to minister into the holy place. Right? And so we see another illustration, a spiritual illustration here. Right? That after the sacrifice of blood, there is, as it were, a change being made, a thorough cleaning. Right? Washed in the blood of Christ. Washed by that blood. There was, salvation is that way. And then there's a change. And then on a daily basis, when the priests, after all that preparation, now the priest can come and he doesn't have to take a bath all over again, does he? He just has to do what? Wash his hands and wash his feet. So there's a preparation there. And that was an interesting illustration that I thought we'd bring to our attention. So the blood saves us from the penalty of sin, but there's that salvation from the power of sin. You may not struggle with it, but I do. And I'm sure that many here would say the same. Look with me, if you would, as the Apostle Paul would help us to get an understanding of what it means and what, if we were to look at that labor in Exodus in the tabernacle, if that 350 years or so that it was in operation, what it meant and what would they think? You know, look at with me in Ephesians chapter 5. And of course, Ephesians chapter 5 deals with relationships, relationships of husbands and wives, right? And remember, God redeemed Israel for what? To be in a relationship with them. He wanted them to be his own special people. He didn't redeem them to just, to just gloat over them. And you know, I see some of these parents, they have children and they feed them all this candy and they give them all the best toys and they're always giving them and making them all these promises and, you know, just gloating over them. You know, and there's, you know, some of that's good. Right? But God didn't redeem Israel just to give them, as some of our you know, Christian world does today, you know, health, wealth, and prosperity. That's not what salvation is about. It's about a relationship. And so here in Ephesians chapter 5, in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 25, the illustration here is husbands love your wives, right? But look at what the next statement is. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And what did he do it for? That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she should be holy and without blemish. 
And we know in Revelation, the church is illustrated as the what? The bride of Christ, right? And God is the business. He's in the business. He's at work in cleansing. There's, I mean, if all through the New Testament, you, if they're always talking about blemishes and problems and, and battles and, and evil consciences. And, and God is busy washing and preparing the church. You know, the Jews had an idea of what the washing was in the tabernacle. What did they think it was? Well, in those years, you would think, they would think, well, it was an outward washing. It was a cleansing of the hands, right? It was an external thing. And, uh, and we do know that the Old Testament is external. It's about the external. But there are illustrations about, about, about something better. About something better. The, G, the Jews would, would see it as, uh, in the literal sense, a washing of the hands. But what does Jesus say about it? Look it with me, if you would, in Matthew chapter 15, and you're probably familiar with this. Matthew chapter 15. My question here is, if the blood on the altar <clears throat> is a picture of the blood of Christ, then what picture does the laver, the laver with water in it have for us? What picture does that have? For us, Look what Jesus thought about it. Matthew chapter 15, go down to verse 16. And we all know what's going on here. Jesus was, uh, was with the disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining about how uh, his disciples weren't washing their hands. They weren't honoring the law. They weren't fulfilling the ritual, the washings of the rituals. And in... Verse 16, Jesus would begin to sum it up. So Jesus says to them, Are you also still without understanding? Did you not know what that picture was to represent today? Are you still without understanding? Do you not understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and is eliminated? Right? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from where? Come from the heart. It's the inside that matters. It's not an external thing. It comes from the heart. And those are the things that defile a man. For out of the heart, what proceeds out of the heart? It says evil thoughts, murders, adulterers, fornications, thefts, false witnesses, blasphemy. And these are the things which defile a man... But to eat with unwashed hands, that's not defiling a man. You didn't get it. You just didn't understand what it was to picture. The blood on the altar is a picture of Christ. Then the laver is a picture of an internal cleansing. A cleansing inside. Look, let, go back to John chapter 1. And we'll take a look, John chapter 1, and we're going to look at a few New Testament passages to get an understanding of what that labor, that labor that was there to wash the hands of the priests before they would enter the holy place. In John chapter 1, in verse 29, a great illustration here 
about the Lord Jesus. In verse, in beginning in verse 29, we read, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? The Lamb of God, that would be, that would be which sacrifice? Sacrifice of blood. Right? That would be the sacrifice for a perfecting conscience. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me. For he was before me. I didn't know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing in what? Water. Right? And the idea of baptizing in water was you came and you repented. Baptism even then was a cleansing, right, of repentance of sin. But even to them they, that day, it was external. It was an external. He says, I came baptizing with water. And look at 32. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained on him. I didn't know him. But he who sent me, which would be the Father, he who sent me to baptize with water, said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with what? With the Holy Spirit. With the Holy Spirit. And there are two unique things about the Lord Jesus Christ here that help us understand what it means, the second cleansing. First of all, the first cleansing, we see the lamb who cleanses our sin was by his blood, right? And because he is the son of God, he can give us the Holy Spirit, right? He can give us the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that sanctifying work in our life. It's the Holy Spirit that helps us to avoid those bad deeds, right? You know, I think uh, the one brother used the illustration about a bad deed, uh, about a guy taking his car and running it into someone else's car because he had an old beater. He had an old beat up car. But his, this other fella, got a brand new car, nice, shiny, spiffy, brand new car. And he just was so jealous. He was so jealous, right, that he would back his car up and he would run and T-bone it and crash it up, right? And then later he would feel sorry about it, right? And he would say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I really shouldn't have done that. Well, he can be forgiven for the deed, right? Right? But there's something else that needs to be done. God's not going to forgive him for the jealousy. That's a sanctifying work that's done by the work of the Holy Spirit. Do you see how that works? He could be, he could be forgiven for the deed, but it's the, it's the jealousy, it's that sin that the Holy Spirit works in our life and sanctifies us through that. Let's look at a couple of other scriptures, and hopefully it'll, it'll help us to get a clear understanding of what this washing 
uh, is, is representative of. Turn to, uh, and this is a good one too, Titus. Turn to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3, and you remember the Apostle Paul just wrote about these people, and, and he would say to them that they were, they were evil gluttons, and there was just a whole list of sinful behavior that they were involved with. And look at Titus chapter 3. In verse 3, it says, For we ourselves were also once, and he begins to give a list. And we may fall in somewhere here. For we ourselves also once, we, we, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, right? But according to his mercy, he saved us. How did he save us? Through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, right? There's a sanctifying work going on here. And, and he would begin to wash and regenerate us. And look what verse 6 says. Whom he, what? The King James says, whom he poured out. Like water, right? He poured. You know, when we're saved by blood, when we're saved for the deeds, you're not, blood isn't poured on you. No one was ever, what? There is that song, Washed in the Blood, but... We'd never, it's never an illustration in the Bible. We're not, blood isn't poured. Whenever blood is used, it's what? Sprinkled. Okay? But water is what? Is poured out. And it says that in verse 6. Whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Lord. Is that amazing? The Holy Spirit begins to do a radical cleansing. A regeneration begins. So Holy Spirit begins to work. It's not some topical thing. It's not washing the hands on the outside. It's radical cleansing. It's a new life. John 3, 3, verily, verily, the Lord would say, unless a man is what? Born again. He'll not see the kingdom of God. There's a transformation, a new birth. There's a new nature. Peter helps us to understand this. Turn with me to Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 1. In verse, in, verse, uh, in verse 3, it says, As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain toward life, and godliness, and that's the opposite of those things that Titus just got done illustrating, or the Apostle Paul illustrated to Titus that we once were, right? As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, okay, by his glory, and you know what the virtue is? His blood, the virtue of his blood, right? Through, through not by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly 
great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of, of the divine nature, a new nature, a radical transformation. And that new nature, <laughs> we understand that we have escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Right? When you have that new nature, you've made the great escape. Right? <laughs> the escape of corruption. So Peter helps us to understand a little bit about what it means. What is the spiritual lesson that that labor in the outer court would represent? The deeper spiritual lesson that God, in redeeming a people to come unto himself, would want to come and tabernacle with them. And so the Lord Jesus also teaches us some lessons as well of a water, cleansing by water. And in John chapter 13, and I just have fell in love with this passage, and I don't know if I've said that before, but this particular situation has become so dear to me as I think about you know, the scene and I think about the disciples and I think about the Lord Jesus and his impending persecution and how the disciples were just selfish and self-centered and they were just vying for themselves, not really recognizing, even after all the Lord had taught them, right? And the Lord Jesus would teach two great lessons about water in this particular passage. And it says here in chapter 13, verse 5, After that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and, and, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said, No, no, Peter the impetuous one. You know, first he would say, he would say, uh, Peter would say, Lord. First he would say, No, no, no. First he would tell the Lord what not to do. <laughs> and then in verse 6, Simon Peter would say, well, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. In other words, wash all of me. Right? A great example we see of the Lord's humility here, first of all. But then the Lord Jesus, in verse 10, would say to them, Jesus said to him, He who is bathed, right? He who is washed, he who is Bathed, who is completely clean. He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And, and you are clean, of course, he said, but not all of you, because he would indicate he knew there was the traitor amongst them. For he knew who had betrayed him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. And so we see another great illustration here that bathing is one time. The sacrifice for salvation, the blood sacrifice, was one time. That cleansing for the deeds of sin was satisfied at Calvary by the Lamb of God. 
But there's another cleansing that we do on a daily basis. It says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's a daily process that we, what a great lesson that the Lord would teach us of this sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, it's not by works of righteousness, <laughs> right? But it's by his power. Amazing, amazing. And let's quickly look at one more passage. Let's look at what Hebrews says about this as we were there this morning. And by the way, I didn't mention it, but you know, if you're going to want to get an understanding of what the tabernacle meant, it would be good to go to Hebrews because it was to the Jewish people. It was the Hebrew people that maintained and God would work with them. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, and that was where we were this morning. And it kind of helps us to understand and illustrate the washing of the water. Hebrews chapter 10, and scroll down to, uh, well, if you have a, one of those things, you scroll down. Otherwise, you look down to verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, right? Right? The salvation. Having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance, right? A perfect conscience. That's what that is. Let us draw near, near it with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That's a perfect conscience. Being made perfect. Having our hearts, what? Sprinkled from an evil conscience, the blood, the sprinkling of the blood, and our bodies washed with pure water, the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's an amazing thing. It's a double cleansing that God would have. Does it matter how you live after you've been redeemed? Yes. It matters. It matters. And we see in this passage that, first of all, our fitness to enter the presence of God is based on two things. It's based on our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, trusting in the blood of Christ, right? Our hearts and our bodies washed with pure water. And, you know, we've been t dealing with 2 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 6, and we, we're talking about uh, handling the grace of God in vain, right? right? If our bodies are being washed with water and we are being sanctified, right, there's a transition in our life. There's a radical change. So the testimony of Christ can always have 
an effect, a good effect. So the testimony, so that the gospel will not be taken in vain, right? Do you see how that works? That's the changing work, our bodies washed. The power of the Holy Spirit. What a great joy it is to know that we are double secured. That God didn't save us and then just put us on our own to say, figure it out, right? But that he works with us and the importance of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, right? And how the Holy Spirit, how John would baptize in water and we would see the picture, that external picture, which was representative of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God works from the inside out. I'm going to just close with one more passage and then we'll pray. Go back and I'll just touch on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. The Apostle Paul, up to this point, has been defending his apostleship. He's been defending the authority that God has given him to preach the gospel, right? And he shares all the great gifts and the challenges that he was in and the, the unwavering endurance, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks, the unwavering endurance that the Apostle Paul dealt with so that the gospel would not be taken in vain and shares the great gifts that God's given us. And he comes here, chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Cleansing ourselves, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. What a great joy it is <laughs> to know that I'm not like I was and will of the Lord, I won't be like I am. <laughs> Some of you are saying amen, right? I'm not like I was and I won't be like I am. As God continues to work perfecting holiness in me, why? Not because I have anything. Not, not because I can bring anything. But because he wants to have a relationship with me. He wants to bring me to himself. He wants to tabernacle <laughs> with me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the illustrations represented here, the cleansings, it's not just one cleansing, and may we be mindful of this as we preach the gospel. The gospel is not just the blood of Christ, and though it is of utmost importance to enter into the kingdom of God, the blood, the sacrifice for sin is necessary, but we need to be reminded to preach the other cleansing, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the sanctifying work that God is doing in us. And I pray, Father, that as we've studied this and as we continue to study the tabernacle and the great pictures it 
was designed, it was constructed to, il to illustrate that it would challenge us, Father. It would challenge us to grow deeper and deeper in love with you, to be pliable to the working of the Holy Spirit, to say, Lord, not my will, but thy will be done. And we'll give you thanks, Father. We pray that in all these things that the Lord God would be magnified, that the world would say, those are peculiar people. And we give you thanks, Lord Jesus, for the great grace we find in your sacrifice and for the great work that your Holy Spirit is doing to transform this wicked, evil heart that it would be without blemish on your appearing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.